Alrighty. Here we are, folks. Already back with a new podcast. We're already here. I just dropped part three of How to Hear with Your Heart. It's called God Handles Your Heart. It's awesome. It was a great time, but I'm sure if you're listening to this, you probably listened to that. If not, I, uh, go check it out, man. It's a very, 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 it's a, it's, I'd say it's a gentle teaching. It's, it's something that shows you how God moves on your heart. The whole series is great, but anyways, I am doing a special request this episode, and what I'm teaching on is Ecclesiastes chapter 3. My buddy Zach Campbell texted me. He said, you should do a teaching on Ecclesiastes 3. And I said, fat bet, I will do that. Uh, and I thought that was a really interesting chapter that he chose. So I, I'm going to teach on that to the best of my ability. And before I do that, I want to announce a couple things. Uh, Ladder Rain, my rap group that I'm in, we're coming out with something big this Friday, or at least an announcement, so be on the lookout for that. Share that, please. Uh, me and my wife are cooking up some fun stuff. She's gonna, You're going to start seeing her a lot and hearing her a lot, hopefully, because of some uh, wonderful things happening. Just, uh, um, you guys, you know, I, I'm new to all this, uh, mics and, and, and audio interfaces and recording and editing and all that type of stuff. I'm new to it. So, uh, I've been blessed with good friends that know it. And of course we have the internet. So I, I spend a lot of time, uh, researching without getting to the point where I'm pulling my hair out. You know what I mean? As soon as I start feeling like that, I set it down and I, I go and be with Jesus because I'm not going to have that be my life. Amen. <laughs> uh, that's why you get a team. That's why you, uh, that's why you get people that can do these things that are talented in these areas. So what, what do we got? We got that. Um, the next month is looking pretty crazy with some really cool stuff. Uh, I'll be back in Tulsa, Oklahoma in about two months to do a a youth rally leading worship for that. It's about three days. That'll be fun. Man, I feel like I'm forgetting something. I don't know. Oh, yes. There we go. Thank you, Holy Spirit. After this podcast, I am starting, guess what? A brand new series. I know you guys are probably getting tired of series, but this is one <laughs> that I have been holding off for a long time. Not for any particular reason. It just kept slipping out of my hands. And there's a, I, I got an email. The first email I've ever received on this podcast. <laughs> and it was a friend of mine, and she was wondering, yo, when are you going to do a podcast on speaking in tongues? So I am going to teach on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to expound on what does the baptism of the Holy Spirit look like under grace? What does it look like under the relationship lens? Uh, I was taught things, you know, that I, I'm not sure are necessarily untrue, but I don't think they are the absolute focus of, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So that's exciting. That's coming shortly here, probably next week. And after I do that series, 
uh, I, I would just like to take requests from people. What do you listeners, what do you guys want to hear about? What do you want me to teach on? Uh, what's something I've taught on before that you want to hear more about? Things like that. And if nobody requests, I, you know, of course I have stuff planned. I have individual chapters of the Bible I think I'm going to just start doing. My wife really, I asked her what she thought of that idea, and she really encouraged me. But we're both, me and her, we're both really, um, we like people that teach verse by verse in a chapter and really dig into stuff. At least I do, and I, I know she does as well. And I hope you guys do. If you're, if, if you are a listener of this podcast, hopefully you've uh, kind of developed the skill of going verse by verse and going slow and, and digging into some stuff as much as we can. That's why I like the series because it allows us to kind of set our t- tents up, you know what I mean? And plant ourselves and chill out on a verse or on a concept and let the Holy Spirit really pull some things out. And that's just wonderful. Amen. So, Ecclesiastes 3. I know Ecclesiastes is a really weird name for a book. I cannot for the life of me ever spell it. Every time I try, man, uh, I'm so wrong. But I'm going to get that one day. Amen. (laughs) Ecclesiastes 3. I'm going to do two things in this teaching. I'm going to give you the 3,000-foot view, and I'm going to give you the 3-foot view. What do I mean by that? The 3,000-foot view is, what does Ecclesiastes, the book, what does it look like in the entire Bible? What does it look like under the lens of Jesus? What is the purpose of the book contextually? Where does the book fall? You know what I mean? That's the 3,000-foot view, the very practical side of it. And that's going to benefit us and um, give us knowledge that helps us read it. I do believe that. But let's be honest here. We love the 3,000-foot view, but we're really interested in the 3-foot view. What's the 3-foot view? The 3-foot view is how the Holy Spirit is using that passage or portion of Scripture to speak to you. For instance, in the book of Proverbs, there's a there is a, a a verse that says you need to keep wisdom and you need to hold her tight, let her not go. And that's talking about wisdom. 3 uh, 3000-foot view in context of that chapter, I think it's Proverbs uh, chapter 8 or chapter 9. That's what the verse says and it's talking about wisdom. When I was dating my wife and my wife, she or when we were dating, you know, she wanted to be together and she didn't want to be together, and we went back and forth because she didn't know what she wanted to do. Oh, my alarm's going off here. Stop. Uh, because of that, I read in the scripture. I read that same scripture in Proverbs, and and it said, "Let her not go. Keep her, for she is thy life." And even though the three thousand foot view was that was the context of wisdom, the three foot view for my life in that moment was. Keep my keep Kylie. Keep keep her. She she's my life. Don't let her go. Keep chasing after her. And the Lord used that verse to speak to me. While I'm on the topic, uh sorry, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but this is something very practical and very easy to under, understand. The book of Jeremiah, chapter eight, um, there's a verse in there. Uh uh the Lord's talking about judgment and and Israel's backsliding which is really New Testament terms um the, they were 
too consumed with works and the pharisaical system of the law and the, the deceitfulness that they could cover their own way. And God's pronouncing judgment upon them. And he says, you think you're wise? You think the law, you know, uh, he says, certainly in vain, uh, the pen of the scribes is in vain. The wise men are ashamed. They're dismayed and they're taken. They've rejected the word of the Lord. Um, New Testament, they've rejected Jesus, of course. But there's a verse right in the midst of that, and it's Jeremiah 8, 7. And I was praying again to be with Kylie uh, on if I should or not, and if we were going to be together. And the Lord had somebody text me, hey, I feel like God wanted you to have this verse. I don't know what it means, but there you go. And I read the verse, and it's, Yea, the bird in heaven knows are appointed times, and the turtle and the crane and the swallow observe the time of their coming. But my people know not the judgment of the Lord. So I read that, and I knew instantly in my heart what God was saying. God was saying, the birds know the appointed times. He's saying, you're right on the money. You're meant to be with this woman. Keep pursuing her. The time is right. That your, your season of hiding is over, says uh, the Passion Translation in Song of Solomon 2. So I think you guys are getting a picture of what I'm, what I'm saying. The 3,000-foot the view of Jeremiah, there was a lot of judgment and rebuke going on. But in the midst of that, God used that to speak to me in a completely different way than it was meant. Uh, you got to tread on light ground because in order to receive a 3-foot view, you have to be in close fellowship with the Lord because you might be thinking the Lord is saying something to you and it might be unscriptural. But the Spirit of God will never tell you something that's not in His Word. So, I hope I've explained that well enough. I want to go into the 3,000-foot view of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a part of the wisdom books, otherwise known as the poetry books, which is Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, right? My favorite book. It, it, those four books, they're called the wisdom, and they're so different. They're, they're, they are so different from the rest of the Bible. You know, First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, they're very informational. They're very uh, storyline. Um, the first five books, the Pentateuch um, of the Bible, they are vastly different, very, uh, very much dealing with events concerning... Uh, his people Israel and whatnot, but the wisdom, the poetry books are just very, they, they they touch a lot of different areas that those other books don't touch. And uh, that's about as much knowledge as I can give in that subject. Before we even dive into the book, I want to read a passage out of the New Testament because that's what the New Testament's for. The New Testament is to give us light. It's in the face of Jesus it's in his face that the knowledge of God is shown to us, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Um, so we have to know about the New Testament. I, I don't tell anybody to go read the Old Testament if they don't have a firm foundation in the New Testament because there's things in the Old Testament you'll perceive wrong, and there's things in it that will paint a very uh, dim perception of the Lord. But Jesus is the expressed image of God. We're here to behold Jesus. We are here to experience his goodness and to let him reframe the Old Testament scriptures. Like when uh, the devil came to Jesus and 
you know, he tempted him. Jesus said, thou shalt worship the Lord God with all thy heart. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Worship means to kiss. That's not what that scripture says in the Old Testament. The scripture says, fear the Lord with all your heart. Jesus reframed Old Testament verses. Some might say that's blasphemy, but he's Jesus. He is the written word. He actually revealed their true meaning. And, and that's essentially what I'm going to talk about right now. Second Corinthians chapter 3, if you have your Bible. I wish to God I could just go verse by verse through this. Maybe I'll do this. Maybe this will be one of the chapters I go through. I mention it a lot. But I'm just going to have to just read. It's a shame that we can't go into it, but I'm just going to read straight through and get to my point. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. God has also, he's made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The letter is the Old Testament law. That's what we're about to see here. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, that's the Old Testament law of God, it's, it's the, he says, if the ministration of death, living by the law, living by the attitude of performance, is the ministration of death. It's written and engraven in stones. If that was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. Ah, see, like I wish I could just put all this in context because if you don't know the story of Moses and his face shining, this doesn't make sense. But he's just saying that the glory of the Old Testament law is going to be done away. Uh, it was to be done away. Verse 8, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be more glorious, rather glorious? That's what we're in right now. The, the new covenant, the ministration of the Spirit. For if the ministration of condemnation be glorious, much more does the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. We're not under the ministration of condemnation. We're not under that. That's not how we live. What are we under? The ministration of righteousness. It exceeds in the glory. It's better than the old covenant. The new covenant, this is what Hebrews talks about in chapter 8. It says that the old covenant had to be done away with. The new covenant is a is a a better covenant established upon better promises. Amen. Uh, verse 10, For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect, by the reason of the glory that excels. He's just saying the Old Testament had glory, but it couldn't even, it couldn't even touch the glory of the new covenant. For, that, uh, for if that which is done away... Way, excuse me. King James sometimes gets your tongue tied. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more than that which remains is glorious. The old covenant vanished away, completely gone. We no longer live in a performance mindset. It says that that's been done away and it was glorious. It says, but now the thing that remains, the new covenant, it is glorious. Seeing then we have such a hope, we use great plainness of speech. He's saying the gospel's simple. Paul prayed this in the same epistle, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. He said, I pray that you be not corrupted by the simplicity of Christ. What's the simplicity of Christ? Hey, God loves you. Jesus mad. He took all your sins, and he's never punishing for them. He says, we have this hope of the new covenant. We speak in plainness of speech. And then in contrast, he says, not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end, that which is abolished. A veil is meant to hide the thing behind it, just like the veil in the temple. It hid, the, it shut up the very presence of God from, from everyday people. It says, uh, 
but that's going to be abolished. Verse 14, but their minds were blinded for until this day remains the same veil un, uh, untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament. This verse is all I'm trying to get to. I'm going to read it again slowly. Uh, but their minds were blinded. Whose minds? The people, the children of Israel with, uh, in Moses. It says their minds were blinded for until this day remains the same veil untaken away. So uh, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, saying right here, their minds were blinded, and there's a veil that's still not taken away. In what? He says, in the reading of the Old Testament. So Paul says, there is a reading of the Old Testament where there's a veil over you, which means you can't understand it. But the, the, the last sentence of this verse is, that veil is done away in Christ. This is what I'm talking about. Old Testament scripture being reframed in the mindset of Jesus. Verse 15, but even unto this day when Moses has read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, it shall turn to the Lord and the veil shall be taken away. So what are we about to do? We're turning to the Lord and the veil is being taken away. We are about to see Ecclesiastes 3 under the lens of Jesus. And, and, and so I want to frame Ecclesiastes 3 under the veil of Jesus. If you, if you go and you read Ecclesiastes, which I thought this was very interesting that my friend Zach suggested me this book, because this book is confusing. This, this book is a confusing book. There's things that are said in the book of Ecclesiastes that are counter New Covenant and that are counter the New Testament. Um, we're we're going to see some of that here as we get into this chapter. So we can see the, the Old Covenant. If you read it without the mindset of Jesus, you're not going to understand it. I'm going to just kind of throw this out there so we already have the foundation of this as we're reading. Ecclesiastes 3, it's written by King Solomon. Ecclesiastes 3 is a book written from the standpoint of somebody who is not experiencing intimacy with Jesus. I'll say that again in a different way. Ecclesiastes 3 is not written from some hopeful, awesome, just joy in God. Ecclesiastes is written from the standpoint of there's nothing to live for. The book literally starts off with uh, Ecclesiastes 1-2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Uh, this used to be me in my life. Nothing matters, man. Everything's crap trash. Nothing, nothing is worth anything, you know? Cool, there's God, but that's kind of off for the future. He can't offer anything now. What, what am I going to do now? Uh, he says it in this book. We're just going to eat and drink and be merry and, you know, just work unto the Lord and then die. That's it. Ecclesiastes is written from the standpoint of unbelief. It's written from the standpoint of no hope. New Covenant terms, Ecclesiastes is written from the standpoint of somebody who is not functioning in a living relationship with Jesus. What does that mean? Doing everything right, living super holy, tithing, going to church? No. 
Those things are a byproduct of relationship. Those are fruit, but you're not focused on the fruit. You're focused on the abiding. And if you're not seeing fruit produced yet, don't worry. Just keep abiding. But we're not focused on our doing. We're focused on being. You're not a human doing. You're a human being. And you can just be with the Lord. That's that's the best way I know how to put Ecclesiastes as a book as whole. It's somebody not not... They obviously, if you read the book, they obviously believe in God. They mention God. They say they say glory to God and all stuff like that. But but Ecclesiastes is pretty much what it looks like when someone's born again, but they're not functioning in a living, beautiful, grace-based relationship with Jesus. And don't get me off on what grace-based relationship looks like because we'll be here for hours. I'm on Ecclesiastes 3 right now. So it, this is in the Old Covenant. This is in the Old Testament, obviously. I want to throw this out, too. In, in the book of Hebrews, towards the end, I think it's chapter 8, 9, or 10, it talks about how a testament, a will, that's, a, that's what a will is. A will is a testament. can only be enacted when somebody dies. So if I had a will and then I died... They would bring everybody in the room. They would say, this is the last will and testament of Brock Hames. And I would tell you, hey, um, Brock, he, he died and he gives you all these things. It's kind of like a POD, right? I got that in a rap song coming up. When you die, payable on death. When a person dies, you get everything that was in their account. Woo-wee! That's Jesus. Amen. So Hebrews talks about when somebody dies, then the testament is installed. Uh, my, if I wrote up a will right now, it wouldn't mean anything because the will can only be enacted if I died. Well, there's two books. If you go to the book of Revelation, it talks about the two books. Uh, it talks about uh, how the people were judged. They were judged out of one book or they were judged out of the book of life. I'm going to propose this to you. There's two books in God's eyes. There's the book of life and there's the book of death. Whose book is the book of life? That's Jesus, of course. How is it Jesus' book? Jesus died. And because he died, boom, the New Testament was set in action. Now, the kind of loophole in that is Jesus rose from the dead, amen? But he died, and now his testament is in motion. In contrary, I'm just saying, folks, uh, the things that I'm saying right now, I've never heard anybody say some of this stuff in my life. The Lord's been recently showing me some of this stuff, and I, I think it's cool it's coming out in this specific teaching. Whose is the other testament? That's, the, that's Adam's testament. What's Adam's testament? You're going to work by the sweat of your brow. Um, you are going to uh, work real hard. Remember, that's what God told him. It wasn't a punishment. He was just telling him that the consequences of his action. Adam now had to relate to God by doing, by working hard. He could, he could no longer enjoy a, a, a sinless conscience of uh, enjoying Jesus and just walk around and you know enjoy the garden. No, now he had to work hard, and now he had to uh, sacrifice and, and, and get rid of his guilty, guilty conscience before Jesus. That's, that's Adam's testament. That's the first testament. So anything in Adam's testament is most likely going to be rooted in that. Now, there are shining moments. Uh, David, in David's life, his actions and his words and the way he operated, that man 
was an old covenant man operating under new covenant principles. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. But uh, and you know, Song of Solomon, of course, and there's there's moments and moments and 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 glimmers through the Old Testament. But the facts are, the Old Testament is the the testament of Adam. It's when Adam died, you uh, everyone born after Adam then received death from him in opposition to when Jesus died and he rose from the dead, now we that have we we all died with him. Really every human has died at the cross. The only difference is that some people raised from the dead. They become born again. But when you're raised from the dead, everything that he purchased in his death now becomes yours. I hope that's making sense. So this is Adam's testament. It's the testament of death. We already read that it said the ministration of the Holy Spirit. Ecclesiastes is a pessimistic view. It's a life without Christ, which is Old Covenant. So now what I'm going to do, now that I kind of laid that groundwork, I'm going to give you the three-foot view now, and I'm going to give you what the Spirit of the Lord ministers to me as we read these verses. Uh, I'm just going to probably do the whole chapter, just verse by verse. This is the three-foot view. Um... I'm going to propose this question and then hopefully remember to answer it at the end. Uh, what is the point of life? What's the point of life? So keep that in mind. Stick that in your feathered cap and hopefully I'll remember to come back to that. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And I'm sorry that took a lot of groundwork and framework, but I promise it's going to be worth it. And, and things like that really trip people up if they don't understand context. Verse 1. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under under heaven. Uh, I'm not going to take time to like read the whole thing and then go back. I'm just going to I'm just going to go for it verse by verse. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. There's a Phil Keggy song, great Phil Keggy song uh based off this verse. And the time of the harvest is here. Don't be blind and take heed how you hear. Freaking awesome song, man, but it's based off this verse. To everything there is a season and a time, to every purpose under heaven. Is that not truth? That's a very practical, simple truth. I'm going to throw this out there uh, just because it's the first example that came to my mind. Uh, I dated this one girl for on and off for five years, and it was a horrible relationship, and it was just god-awful. Towards the end, I, I had come back to Jesus, and I had— and I wasn't very nice to this girl, keep in mind, and I had— changed my ways. Now I was nice to her. Now I was being cool and whatnot. I had forsaken my old ways. And if I would have been listening to the Holy Spirit, I would have known that the time uh, for that person to be in my life was over. Jesus tells a parable about not the uh, when I say the parable of the fig tree, I know what you're all thinking of. You're all thinking of the time Jesus came up and he cursed that fig tree. No, there's another parable of a fig tree that's not really talked about as much, and it's in the book of Luke. I'm blanking hard right now where it is, but anyways, what happens is uh, this guy he owns this vineyard with a fig tree, and there's also a vine dresser. So there's the the owner, the vine dresser, and the fig tree. The uh the owner comes and he was like he comes to the fig tree and he says i've i've come to this fig tree all the time and it's not producing any fruit 
He says, I'm going to cut it down. What does the vine dresser do? The vine dresser says, no, 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 wait. He's like, let me take care of it. Let me take tender care of it and give me three years. Now there's a 3,000 foot view of that. I believe that's God and Israel and God's ready to cut the tree down, right? In, in that same book of Luke, that is what John the Baptist said to the Pharisees. He said, every tree that is not planted by my heavenly father, he will hew down. He's going to chop down. So God, he's ready to chop down Israel. He's had enough with them. He has extended grace and grace and grace, but all they want is law, law, law. And God's ready to sh put Jesus on the scene. And then this vine dresser, it's Jesus. He says, well, give me three years. You know, it's kind of God having fellowship and intimacy in himself discussing the future of Israel. And he's saying, give me three years. The ministry of Jesus was about three and a half years. So prophetically, that's what it's saying. But but back to the three-foot view. If, if, if a tree was not producing fruit for three years, you need to cut it down. I didn't know this lesson yet. And there's, there's plenty of people. I was thinking about this today. I personally, me. I know everyone's not like this. I have such a hard time cutting off friendships. Um, I just, I, I always remember the great times I had with people, the connections I had with them. Um, I always want to check on people. I want to call them. I want to text them. I want to make sure they're doing okay. But I've learned recently that, you know, life develops and things go on. And just because you aren't close friends anymore doesn't mean that you don't love that person. That person doesn't love you. And... You're just in different spots in their life, you know? You you move to a different state. You are doing a different career. You you know, uh, my, my best friends, I'm still best friends with them. Uh, they're actually going to come visit here in, a, in about a month or so. But I can't keep up with them in the way that we used to. We live, uh, you know, 22 hours away from each other. They've got lives going on. I've got lives going on. Um you see what I mean? Uh, and, and to cut off doesn't necessarily have to mean, uh, how do I say it, it doesn't have to mean you ruin it or, you know, I'm, I'm cutting you off out of my relationship and out of my life. No, it just means to let things go. And I think that's what this verse is talking about to everything. There's a season and a time and to every purpose under heaven. There in your spiritual life, there's times when there's times when I'm really in the word. One of one of those times is right now. I in three days I just read the whole book of Isaiah and I went through it with, with a pen and just enjoyed that. Reading the word. Man, there's times where I'm really, really, really in the word. I always read the word, but there's times when I'm really in it. There's other times when I I feel such a tug on my heart to uh pray in tongues a lot. To pray in the spirit, there's times where I just have a spirit of worship and I'm constantly worshiping the Lord on my instruments and singing. There's times when I'm resting and I'm not doing anything ministry-wise and there's times where I am doing ministry stuff every second of every day, getting things lined up, working on projects, thinking of how to deliver everything good, deliver everything proper. So this is just a very practical verse in my opinion. Verse 2, there's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. Wow, how convenient is that? I'll, I'll just be honest, I didn't know verse 2 was going to be talking about plucking up and planting and whatnot. It says uh, there's a time to be born and a time to die. 
uh, your time of death was when you were born. <laughs> what do I mean by that? You were born under the, the system of Adam. You were born out of the loins of Adam. And then what? There's a time to be born, to be born again. There's a time for you to accept and a time to receive Jesus. I, I'm, I, I accepted Jesus too young. I don't know when I did, so I didn't get to enjoy that. But every person I know that accepted Jesus when they were older and conscious, it's such a dear, precious moment for them. There's a time to be born, a time to die, a, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to plant, to me, that totally speaks on planting seeds. You, you don't get an instant harvest. Sometimes you do. Uh, sometimes you, you, you just, the Lord drops something in your heart and you feel like you feel like you just got it all at once. It didn't even grow. But that's typically not the way the Lord rolls. Um, I'm going to take, what's, a, what's just a revelation? Uh, uh, let's talk about um, grace, the, the, the grace of God, and, and, and learning the good news that Jesus is not mad at you. That message and that seed was planted in me about a year, a year and a half ago. And that seed grows in me every day. It grows in my heart, right? We just got done talking about the heart. It just grew, and it's still growing in my heart. That's what the kingdom of God is like. It's, it's leaven that touches bread, and then the whole bread becomes leaven. That, that's what the, a time to plant is. There's, there is a time when God is going to plant things in you. He's going to plant your calling on your life. He's going to plant his love, his grace. He's going to plant um, desires to be with somebody. He's going to plant new desires about, that are specifically tangled, uh, entangled in your life. I think that's awesome. There's a time of planning, and you don't always see the harvest instantly. Back when I was in Bible school, I worked like three days a week, and uh, I would just come home and study and pray and read and just enjoy Jesus. And it was in those times that the Lord slowly but surely started to minister to me my calling and the position that I feel he's called me to be in in the body of Christ and uh, what to be to his people exactly. And that took time, man. That took maybe six plus months for me to really grasp. And then even when I grasped it, I had to accept it and come to terms with it because uh, it wasn't what I envisioned, to be honest. And that took time. That's a, that, there's a time of planting. And then uh, we're still in verse 2. It says, in a time to pluck up that which is planted. Uh, there's things inside of you. Not in your spirit. Your spirit's perfect. You look just like Jesus. You smell just like Jesus. You are just like God, according to the New Testament. He's put his spirit in you, and your spirit's joined together. But there's things in your heart, and there's things in your mind that are not of God that are there. Now, I don't believe, personally, that you can successfully get every single thing out of your heart and your mind that's not God. I don't believe that's going to happen until the day that... Uh, we go be with Jesus. Um, no, I'm not going to say that because I don't want to get into that can of worms. But till that day that we see Jesus, then we shall be known even as we are known, says, says the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 
and so your whole life is, is is kind of this process of the Lord planting the right things and watering them, and also plucking out and and and, and ripping out those plants uh, that He did not plant though there. I will say this little freebie here: don't get so focused on what's got to come out of you. Just focus on what's already in you, which is Christ. My wife Kylie, she used to be into that before we got a hold of gra- of grace. She was really into. I need to deny myself. I need to, you know, the ultimate obtainment is to die to self. And it's to, uh, you know, constantly root out all the bad things in me. No, what that does is make you conscious of how bad you are. The gospel of grace, you know, I reference James and John hanging out with Jesus and, and the power and the love that Jesus showed towards them and the abilities that he gave them to love and to have power uh, over over demons and sickness and everything, it caused them to have so much self-confidence that they said, that they, they got their mother to ask Jesus, can my son sit at your right and your left hand? That's used in maybe uh, religious circles as a kind of rebuke, but Jesus doesn't say they're not great. He says, hey, He's, one, he says, you know, what you ask, only my father can prepare because, you know, he was referring to the cross and James and John could not be in that position. But um, then he says, it's just interesting. I want to point this out. James and John were elevated so much by the gospel that they actually believed, I'm going to sit next to Jesus in his kingdom. I don't know about you, but the New Testament says that we do sit next to him in his kingdom. We're on the right hand of the Father in Christ. Amen. So so Jesus was doing the right thing. He really was. He, he was preaching the gospel so hard that they got elevated to a place. Now it's preached as, man, they were so cocky. No, I think they were just functioning in the gospel. And then, and then what happened? Jesus did tenderly correct them. He said, hey, in the way that the world... Um, lets you, he said the Gentiles, but meaning the world, the way that the world operates, uh, which is a, hey, there's boss number one, and then boss number two, and then boss number three, he said the way that the world operates, it's not going to be like that in the kingdom, because the kingdom doesn't operate like that. The kingdom doesn't operate by um, apostle, and then prophet, and then teacher, and then evangelist, and then pastor, and then after that, just your normal Christians who do all the good works. And then under that, uh, the Christians that don't do anything. No, uh, Jesus says the system of the world's like that. The kingdom is the opposite. You're all equal. You're all co-laborers. You're all united with Christ. You all sit on the right hand of the Father. Vastly different. So that there's a, a, a time to plant and a time to pluck out. And Jesus will pluck out those things, but his, his correction is tender and sweet. He says every vine that doesn't produce fruit, or excuse me, every branch that doesn't produce fruit, he doesn't take away, he lifts up, is what the Greek says. He lifts up the branch. And then he says the branches that are producing fruit, a.k.a. James and John were producing fruit, he says he prunes them. You know, he just cuts away maybe the thorns that are growing and maybe the leaves that shouldn't be there. But it's 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 tender correction. Moving on to verse 3. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to kill... Obviously, we know this isn't talking about people. Uh, to me, this just ministers, again, there, there's a time to let things die in your life. 
there's a time where you need to kill some things off. And that doesn't have to be violently, and certainly that does not mean people do not take this teaching and think, I'm going to go kill off my relationships with people because because Brock said to. No, you got to be led by the Spirit, and the Spirit will also reveal to you how you're supposed to do that. There's a time to kill, and there's a time to heal. Well, I'll say this, the time to heal is now. Um, even if you want to frame this verse in the whole entire 3,000 foot of the Bible, the time to kill was the Old Testament, the ministration of death. But we are now in the time to heal. How do I know that? Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Jesus pronounces his ministry. He starts off and he says, The Spirit of the Lord upon me. To kill? Nope. The Spirit of the Lord's upon me to heal the broken heart, to set the captives free, to heal those that are bruised, to set liberty those that are held captive. That is the time we're in right now. We're in a, we are in a time to heal. And also, there was a time where you were beat down by life. There was a time where maybe religion beat you down, and there's a time for healing. What does that mean? You don't have to have all the answers. You can sit back. If it, I'm, uh, uh, My pastor said this in our church in Tulsa, and I'm going to say it in my church in Wisconsin. If you are a new believer or you're new into grace— and you're, you're just now figuring out, figuring out that God's not mad at you. Jesus doesn't forgive one sin at a time. He, he forgave all sins on the cross. Jesus is in love with you. If you're just starting to get a revelation on these things, do not volunteer. Don't go out and try to minister that to people. You don't do anything. You sit right there in the church uh, when you're listening to the podcast, when you're praying to the Lord, when you're reading your Bible. You sit there and you don't do a thing. You be like Mary. You sit at the feet of Jesus and you hear the good word of the kingdom. Why? Because there's a time to be healed. I like what Lynn Hyle says. He says, uh, the truth will set you free, but it'll make you mad first. That's something I've dealt with. That's something everybody, everybody that comes out of religion, out of the law, and into grace, into relationship, you deal with being mad, which is fine. Uh, God isn't upset that you're mad. Um, Usually that's one of the indicators that you've been set free is that you're mad, but <laughs> the gospel doesn't just set you free from the law, but it sets you free to grace. A lot of people are delivered from the law, but not delivered to the gospel yet, which is fine. I was in a spot like that, and most people are, but there's a time to heal. Um, there's a time where you could sit back and you don't, you know, maybe for you that looks like um, you're not volunteering in church. That looks like you're not hanging out with the same group of believers anymore. There's a time to heal. Time to kill, a time to heal. The time of killing is over. We're under the new covenant, amen? Uh, a time to break down, a time to build up. Again, the old covenant was a time to break down. What was God breaking, breaking down? He was breaking down the self-righteousness of the law. Wow, I don't know if you guys can hear that thunder. It was bright and sunny five seconds ago. Now it's about to storm. Amen. Uh, God, he was breaking down the self-righteousness of men. But that time is over. Why? Because it's a time to build up. That's what the anointing of God does. It builds up. The, the most anointed man in the room is not the guy who points out your sin and tears you down. Nope. The only thing that needs to be teared down is wrong doctrine, is, is the law belief that we are under a performance relationship with Jesus. We are under the time to heal, and it's a time of building up, building up, edifying. That's what the, 
uh, the New Testament's about. First Corinthians 14, chapter 2, he that speaks in an unknown tongue edifies himself, and he that's, that flows in prophecy edifies the church. God is not going to point out your sin. He didn't hang out with Mary Magdalene and call her a prostitute. No, he just lifted her up like a branch that wasn't producing fruit. He lifted it up. Verse number four, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Again, if we just keep applying this to covenant, it's pretty obvious. The, I, 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 after I just got done reading Isaiah, it constantly talks about God's going to give you, you know, in the new covenant prophetically, God's going to give you oil instead of mourning. He's going to give you dancing instead of sorrows. There, there's a time to weep, which was the old covenant law of performance. And man, we can't get out of here and we, don't, we can't amount to God. Now there's a time to laugh. Ha ha. He that sits in the heaven laughs. I think that's Psalms chapter 2. And, you know, Jesus loves to laugh. Jesus said, I want your, your joy to be fulfilled. He wants your prayers to be answered. He wants intimacy to be had. What's one of the most joyous things you can do in a relationship? Me and my wife, man, when we laugh together, we're having fun. It's a good time. A, a, a time to mourn and a time to dance. There, there's not a time of mourning anymore. The time of mourning was the Old Testament. What is the time of mourning? God's up there. We're down here. He's holy. We're sinners. We can never approach him. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. Please, God, come down from heaven. No, that's a time to mourn, but we're under a time of dancing now. When's there a time of dancing? That's in, in, in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6 when David, he was the, he, the tabernacle, meaning the, 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 the law, the tabernacle of Moses, was out there in Shiloh, but David took the Ark of the Covenant, the very symbol of Jesus in the Old Testament, one of them, and he takes that Ark and he brings it to his house so that everyone can come there and worship and praise the Lord. And what did David do there? Second Samuel chapter 6, I think it's verse maybe 13? I don't know. I haven't thought about that verse in a while. But it says, David danced before the Lord with all his might. This, that is a prophetic picture of the dancing of the new covenant, which is what? Where's dancing also mentioned? Exodus. We are on a roll right now, people. Exodus chapter, uh, I think it's 14. After the children of Israel had been delivered from Egypt, and most, most of us preach, I know I have, that Egypt is a symbol of, the, of sin, and I don't disagree with that, but I, I believe Egypt is really a symbol of the law. You're under slavery, you're under bondage, you're under relating to God based off of your works. But after they got delivered through that and they went through the sea, they were baptized with the sea, says Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And all the people that persecuted them got drowned in the sea. And right after they came out the other side of the Red Sea, what happened? Miriam, Moses' sister, he, she walked up with tambourines and with the other women, and they prayed and they sung and they danced. Why? Because they were free from the bondage of Egypt. Now's the time to dance, people. You're free from the bondage of the law. You no longer have to relate to God based off of how holy you're living, based off of your own goodness, no, but off of the goodness of Jesus. That's good news. That's a 3,000-foot view. What's a three-foot view? For me, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to, to dance. Uh, being sensitive to uh, doing the correct things, I say correct things, because I think a lot of things that are socially told us 
Um, I think Jesus broke a lot of those. Doing what the Spirit has led, leading you to do in a moment. What am I talking about? Paul says, uh, cry with those that cry, sorrow with those that sorrow, and joy with those that joy. You know, if somebody's mom or something just died, you know, for me personally, the first thing I say is, well, man, they're they're enjoying Jesus right now. If I knew they were a believer, and I, I try to uplift that person and give them that hope. But it would be pretty wrong of me to, well, I don't know. It's situational because, you know, you tell Jesus, my daughter's dead. You can go now. And Jesus says, nah, she's asleep. That's, you know, pretty offensive. So I'm just saying be led by the Spirit is what I'm saying. The Spirit will impress on you how to act, kind of the situation of if, if, if somebody is a really strong believer and their, their, their mother was a believer and she went to go be with Jesus, it's probably appropriate that you, can, you, can re- you get to rejoice with that person and say they're in heaven and you guys can, you know, that might be an appropriate time to laugh. If you know someone who's not a believer, maybe their mom's not a believer, maybe they're a believer and their mom's not a believer, an even worse situation, and their mom dies, that's genuinely not a uh, uh, generally not a time to laugh. That's a time to mourn with them and to bear up their burdens. I, I hope that makes sense. I believe you're catching the spirit of what I'm saying. Amen. So that's kind of just some practical stuff in my opinion. There's a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones. Do you know what the time of gathering stones is? That's the Old Testament. The, the very, you know, symbol of the Old Covenant is stone, written and graven in stone. Remember the, the, the two tables, the tablets of, of the commandments that Moses brought down? It is, it is um, the very symbol of the law. And isn't it interesting, the law is what ministered death. How did you die under the law? Usually you got stoned to death. And I'm not talking about smoking too much weed, amen. I'm talking about getting stoned with rocks. That's what we're talking about. And let's see here. There's a time to gather stones. The time of gathering stones so that, so that you'll die because you didn't live up to God's holy rules. That was the old covenant. Now it's the time to what? Cast away stones. What does that look like? That's personified in Jesus John chapter 8, he said, pick up a stone uh, if you haven't sinned and throw it at this woman who was caught in adultery. And what happens? They all cast away their stones. Woo-wee, man. Uh, I just want to preference this. I I read this chapter maybe two times before I jumped in here. So I I just believe the Spirit of the Lord is just right now, I'm seeing things that I never even thought to saw. (laughs) Uh, A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. You know what the time for reframing from embracing is? <laughs> guess, guess, the Old Covenant. You could never fully come into a grace-based, embraced relationship with God in the Old Covenant. You're, there was always fear. There was always fear of God. New Covenant, perfect love, cast out fear. The time to embrace is here. And I think you guys are pretty smart, some of the practical things of, uh, of these. My wife, you know, I haven't seen my wife in about three or four days now. She's been in Chicago. She comes She comes home today. Now is the time for embracing, brother. Amen. We gonna embrace all night. <laughs> I'm just joking. I, I, I hope 
you guys at least find that a little funny. You know, and there, there's a time when I'm whatever. If we were we were sleeping in an RV with all my friends and me and my wife, that's not the time to be embracing. You catch? So there's a spiritual application to this stuff. I don't know if you guys can hear the rain. Hopefully it's just cool sound effects. There's a time to embrace practically and, and the, the spiritual embracing of Jesus now that we are not under the bondage of the law. Verse 6, a time to get and a time to loose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. I think these are pretty self-explanatory. A, a time to get what? Get all the Jesus you can and a time to lose. I think you can apply these to absolutely any area of your life. There's a time of getting and a time of uh, losing, a time to keep and a time to cast away. Only the Spirit of God can inform you when you're supposed to cast things away out of your life, both spiritually, both tangibly. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. There's a time to rend and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak. To rend means to rip. I can't, I, I can't just not keep um, showing these old covenant and new covenant parallels, the time of Ren, the time to rip away. Uh, that was the old covenant. And what happened? Man, there's so many ways you could actually apply uh, this to a time to Ren. That's the, the ripping away, the tearing, just the wrath under the law of God. And there's a time to sow, the, the time to build up. You notice the author of Ecclesiastes, he's He's obviously saying the same message 50,000 times in, in, in 50,000 different ways that you can understand. So if, you, if you've read and listened up to this point, you can see the, the spirit behind what he's trying to get at. I believe prophetically he's speaking to the covenants, but there's practical applications, of course. Uh, this is the time to sow. That means to mend. Um, first, what is that? Psalms 147.3, it says he heals the brokenhearted. That's what Jesus is doing. He wants to sew you up. He wants to do that in your life. And there's there's a point where you get all sewed up and you get healed, and then you get to sew other people up. There's a time to keep silent and a time to speak. I, one, I'll say covenantially, if that's even a word, the time to keep silent was the Old Testament. Oh, you did something wrong? I'm not going to talk to you. That, that was God. That's what he had to be in the Old Testament. To, and it was for the purpose of breaking self-righteousness. But the time to speak, that's right now. The Holy Spirit is always speaking to you 24-7, uh, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, all of your life. He's never going to stop talking to you. Your sin and your disobedience cannot defer you from hearing the voice of God. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice if they're obedient. No, he didn't say that. He just said they hear my voice. God is not... You know, 1 Corinthians 13 says God is not touchy. He's not feely. He, he doesn't get offended. And, and if that's how we're supposed to be with humans, how much more is God like that with us? He's not touchy. He's not feely. He's not afraid of your sin because really technically in his eyes, he sees no sin in you. He sees you in Jesus. Practically speaking, um, God has really been opening this up to me in my own personal life. A time to keep silent and a time to speak. I've all... Uh, Oftentimes, I think of myself as a John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and I do think I, I practice a lot of attributes like that, but I hate to say I, I've been a Peter far too much. What do I mean by that? When, when, when 
they came to take Jesus away. You know, uh, Peter, he pulls the sword and he slices the ear. He, he, he does that. And what, is, what does Jesus say? He says, oh, the, those that live by the sword, they, they die by the sword as well. And I, I have been guilty of that. I, I have drawn the sword too much in my ministry. I have, I have pointed the sword too much in my life. I've spent a lot of time tearing and destroying. And I haven't spent a lot of time building up and, and laying down new foundations. And the Spirit of the Lord has been revealing this to me for the past month. And it's, it's transformed my life. It's, it's changed how I operate with people. It's, it's given me a heart of compassion, a, a time to keep silent, a time to speak. If you know me personally, you know I am not afraid to speak Jesus. I'll speak it. I'll shout it from the rooftops. Um, if there's a hundred people in the room that are Christians and they won't speak up about Jesus, I'll speak up. It does not bother me. But learning how to speak up is really important to me. I can affect more people by my ac- actions and by my attitude than by my preaching. Uh, that's how it goes. That's that's how Jesus operated. He just operated with such meekness and such humbleness that it drawed people to him. And then after that, they got into his preaching and to his teachings. And that's how I'd like to be. A time to keep silent and a time to speak. I'm not saying you don't ever pull the sword. But what I am saying is when you pull the sword, be ready for the repercussions because those that live by the sword die by the sword. And if you notice all throughout the Bible, the sword is never in, in Jesus' hand. It's in his mouth. And when the Bible calls Jesus the Lion of Judah, he says the Lion of the tribe of Judah can open the seal in Revelation 5. And then when he turns to look at Jesus, it says it's a, it's a, it's a lamb slain. So he has the title of a lion, but he operates like a lamb. How does a, a lamb is harmless? That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, be wise as a serpent, be harmless as a dove. Um, I'm really preaching to myself, if I'm being honest right now. I'm, I, I'm getting a lot out of this at the moment. That time to keep silent, to know, it's in practically it's speaking. Um, we were with family a, a week or two ago, and uh, some of them said, oh, my back hurts and this hurts. And typically a year ago, I would have said, let me pray for your back. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with wanting to pray for someone to heal them. But it's just having that wisdom, especially with family. My encouragement to uh, you listeners and, and followers of Christ that your family isn't on board yet. Either they're religious, they're not grace-based, or they're not believers yet. Hey, I encourage you to not say a word. Don't say a word to your family. Don't preach at them. Uh, Don't even. Just let them see the fruits of your life. Your joy and your happiness and your faith and just your altogether peace that you carry will minister to them more than if you try to preach at them. Because that's what the Pharisees did. They constantly preached at the people, but Jesus lived out the gospel. You can actually preach the gospel without saying a word, and that's beautiful. Time to keep silent, time to speak. The Holy Spirit's the only one that's going to give you that wisdom. I, had a, I have a friend, Caroline Cooper. She's just a, such a dear friend, and uh, she's my, my future sister-in-law. <laughs> that's weird to say. She's dating my, my brother, my little brother. And she said the other day, I was telling her something that happened to me that day, and 
we were talking about some things and and she said it's like we all have an earpiece in and i thought that was just the best um what do you want to say just you know little nugget ever because that's so right it's you know mr president <laughs> well uh we're like if you're a christian you're like a secret service you're a secret servant agent and 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 that earpiece that's the spirit of god and the word of god and that's him just letting you know hey hey don't say a word yet don't say a word uh, they're not ready they wouldn't receive the gospel or you know it's having that earpiece aka the heart i really encourage you if you haven't listened to my heart series check it out because it'll affect how you listen to god it's the key to the christian life in a, in a, in a lot of ways in my opinion but it's that Holy Spirit saying, hey, now's the time. Now's the time to speak Jesus to them. When I worked at Olive Garden in, 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 in Tulsa, Oklahoma, what I did was there was 50-plus employees in there, and I'm telling you, the Spirit of God moved so intricately in that, that restaurant. And by the end of my career there, I administered the love of Jesus to every single person one-on-one uh, -on -one somehow. And if you've ever worked in a restaurant, you know how busy it is. And it's so hard to get a moment alone in a restaurant for sure. But yet every single employee, I saw the Spirit of God magically. I mean, it would be like I went to the back to go grab, you know, some silverware. And there was just a random employee back there. And I just started talking to him. And then, boom, one thing led to another. We're talking about Jesus. H have that earpiece in. Be sensitive to the Spirit. And how do you be sensitive to the Spirit? You learn who Jesus is. That's what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight. He said, "Learn of me, learn of me. Take my yoke. Take my way. Take the way that I I, I balance things out. Uh, take my covenant. Take uh, see with my eyes and hear with my ears. And the only way you can do that is by learning God. You're not a soldier awaiting for orders. You're a son listening to your father. That's the first mindset you gotta get." Amen. We spent a little time on that, but I think it was well worth it. There's a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. This is, man, how have I never preached out of this chapter before? There's so many truths in here about the, the covenants. What's the, the time of love and the time of hate? Just, you know, we're in the time of love right now. The time of Jesus. Jesus loving you, and because he loves you, you get to love other people. A time of war and a time of peace. War and peace, I find that very interesting terms here because when the angels appeared to uh, the shepherds at Jesus' birth in Luke, I think it's chapter 2, they said, Hosanna to the highest and peace to them, peace and goodwill towards men. He wasn't talking about man and man having peace with each other. He was talking about the peace between God and man. If you want to know more about that, I highly suggest you listen to Andrew Womack's The War is Over. That is, uh, that book changed my life and gave me a foundation of grace when I read it. It was awesome in the in the series. Listening to it is awesome as well, man. It's almost better in a sense to listen to it, but reading it is just as good as well. Um that's that's what he meant. There wasn't a war between man and man. There was war between God and man. What was it? God a man could not keep God's standards. It was impossible. It could never be done. But now that Jesus is on the scene, he says peace and goodwill towards men. What's the time of war? The old covenant. Now we are in the time of peace. Jesus is our prince of peace. He is our king. And he sits and he reigns. We're reigning with Christ right now. How awesome is that? Verse 9. 
uh, now he starts switching it up. What profit has he that works and wherein he labors? He's basically like, why should I even work? You know, what what profit is there? Um, this is that very pessimistic mindset without Christ. You know, there's 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 no lab- there's no fruit to my labor. Again, I I I I just read it fresh on my mind at the end of Isaiah. He says, they're gonna build houses and my people are gonna live in them. They're gonna plant vineyards and they're gonna eat the fruit of it. That's what the what life with God looks like. You're laboring, but it's joyful and it's fun, and it actually doesn't feel like work. It feels like you're resting, even though you're working. That's what the new covenant looks like. Verse 10, I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. This is one of those moments. I've seen the travail which God has given. God does not give travail. The only thing God gave that was travailing was the old covenant of law. And in Galatians chapter 3, that says the law was added. The law, the rules of God, punishing people for their sins was actually not God's original plan. And you can see that in the first uh, 2,000 years of creation from Adam to Moses. uh, God, for the most part, was not imputing people's sins. Uh, And if you look at those specific instances where God did impute people's sins, it it typically had to do with the Messiah— that's what it had to do, like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the the flooding of the earth, even the 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 killing of a man named Onan because he wouldn't have sex with his uh, dead brother's wife because that was his duty. Did you know that was out of the tribe of Judah? That was the very tribe that Jesus was supposed to come out of, and uh, so th- there there's there's bigger pictures, but as a whole, the the. The rule of God was to not in people's sin to them, but there were exceptions. And like I said, if you look at all those instances, there's reasons for those, and I believe they're linked to the birth of the Messiah. If God wouldn't have destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and, and the earth and whatnot, there, there, I don't think there would have been a virgin left for, for Jesus to be born by. And that might sound silly, but I'm, I'm literally saying, I mean, it was like child molesters, people having sex with animals, rapists, uh, Mary, she, you know, some say she was as young as 13, I don't know, but let's just say she was even 15, Jesus' mom, Mary, she wouldn't have been 15 and a virgin, but the, but the prophecies would soon come in Isaiah, I think it's chapter 9, that, uh, that the, the Messiah would be born through a virgin. So there was reasons that he had to do that, but then after, the, after Moses, after the law, boom, sins were, sins were imputed. Look at Cain, the first murderer on the face of the planet. What does God do? He puts a mark on him and he protects him. He says, "If anyone kills him, I, you know I'm gonna. I, you're you're not gonna get away with it." And then look under the law. The first guy to break the law is a guy that picked up sticks on the Sabbath. Boom, shuts him up in the temple, kills him. They stone him to death. So there's some kind of different dealing here. God, God is dealing with humans different in, in, in from the first two thousand years to the next two thousand years, being being the law. So to say, um. I have seen the travail which God has given to the sons of men to be exercised therein. The only travail God gave was the old covenant law, and the purpose of the old covenant law was to break you of self-righteousness. That's what Paul talks about. 1 Corinthians 15, 56, the strength of sin is the law. Uh, He talks about how 
he was alive and then the law came and he died and it destroyed him and it, and it was it's administration of death and of condemnation we read those verses earlier so to read this right now under the new covenant where god is not imputing sin he's not killing people i know people try to argue that god did that in the book of acts but personally i i just can't get behind that i can't believe god was imputing sin um to read this and say, right now, God's given us travail, and I just see it. No, that's a wrong mindset. And I'm glad we're talking about things like this because I, I like to believe that I've thoroughly explained how to read the Old Testament by now in this one podcast. If you're a consistent listener, I, I, hopefully I've, I've helped you understand how to read the Old Testament under the lens of Jesus. So you can't read this verse and say that this is this is right now god is putting travail on us you can't do it verse 11 he has made everything beautiful in his time also he has set the world in thine heart so that no man can find out the work that god has makes from the beginning to the end this is really interesting he says he has made everything beautiful in in his time we're in the time of beauty now of course also he has set the world in their heart that word world, you know what it means in Hebrew? It literally means eternity. Most other translations of this verse, Ecclesiastes 3.11, say he has set eternity in their heart. What does that mean? To set eternity, God has set eternity in the hearts of man. Let me ask you this. Is eternity in the heart of God? Does God desire to, to be forever? Does he desire? Of course, that's who he is. Uh, that's, just, that's, that's how he operates. It's how he always has. It's how he does. how he always will. Humans are made in the very image of God. What does that mean? The attributes of God are apparent in men. I talked about this on a live stream the other day. Oh, my wife's calling me. You got a word for the podcast, babe? <laughs> Dang it. I hate the timing. <laughs> so I'm prepared. Just go. Whatever the Spirit says, go. Um, he says to stop being afraid and to um, allow him to make a decision for you, and he will put desires into your heart. <laughs> you know what I'm literally talking about right now? What? I'm talking about how the Lord, he has set his, uh, he set eternity in your heart, his desire. <laughs> Hilarious. Can I call you back after this? You sure can. Cool. Okay, bye. Bye. Swag. Good word. Good good word, sister. Sister, sister Kylie. <laughs> Amen. I know she doesn't like brother and sister talk, but I think it's cool. But it's kind of like classic Pentecostal to me, uh, which I like that aspect of it. But anyways, he said eternity in our hearts. What's that talking about? God, you, he's created you in his image. Even someone who's not born again, even someone who's ungodly has godly desires. What's a godly desire? to have friends, to be accepted, to have children, to be married, to be loved. Those are all godly desires. And this other one is, is clear. He set eternity in the hearts of men. That's very plain. It, it, it doesn't, uh, um, people can say, and I say they say, they can lie about, I don't care what happens to me after I die. Uh, I don't I don't believe in God. I don't believe in eternity. They can say that, but the Bible clearly says he has set eternity in the hearts of man. Even if in their mind they've convinced themselves of a lie in their heart, 
in their heart. I'm convinced if you were on a plane and that plane was was going down and you weren't sure about what was going to happen to you, you'd be thinking about it, buddy. I really am convinced. Uh, uh, Jesse Duplantis said this. He's he's a traveling minister and he's been preaching a long time. And he said he's he's been on two or three flights where the plane was going down. One of them was struck by lightning right above his seat. Talk about talk about the enemy wanting to kill him. And I don't believe Satan has that power personally. I don't I don't think Satan has any power. I think Satan has deception, but I don't think he has power most certainly. And I don't know. I'm not even convinced that was the devil trying to kill him. I'm not going to say that. I'm I'm not going to say that because I don't know. I'm not into all that stuff. But uh, he said that he he he's watched uh, Muslim people, Buddhist people, and as soon as that plane goes down, the first thing they yell is Jesus. <laughs> Amen. And uh, I'm just kind of retelling a story, but I do believe that as well. Um, you know, someone who says they don't believe in God, as soon as they figure out they're about to die, whatever, going down the plane, I guarantee you, they'd be saying God. They'd be screaming. They'd be praying to God. Um, I believe most people would pray to Jesus because most people know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and he's the way to the Father. He's, uh, amen, I won't get off on that. That's a good verse, but uh, he said eternity in their hearts. People desire. They desire to live forever. We can see this in empires, in generals, in dictators, in people that operate in, in witchcraft, in sorcery. All those things are very real, that, that they want to operate in the demonic. Uh, it's funny, you know, we, we kind of look at people who practice witchcraft and we think, wow, they're just, you know, they're so stupid, they're so silly. Are they, though? Because they're really just doing the same things that you do under the spirit of God, but they're, they're doing them out of a source that's wrong, of course. No, I, I, th- that actually makes me have pity and compassion on people because they're, everybody's got a God-shaped hole in their heart, but the only thing that fills it in Jesus. And obviously, if your assurance is in Jesus, then your eternity is looking pretty bright. Amen? So uh, uh, it says, He has also set eternity in their hearts so that no man can find out the work that God makes from the beginning to the end. Again, this is an old covenant verse. This is a, this is a verse with the veil on it. It's just like in Isaiah. It says, Eye has not seen nor ear heard the things that God has prepared for the hearts of them and for them that love them. Uh, that's the old covenant. The old covenant, covenant is, Who can instruct the mind of the Lord? New covenant, you have the mind. You can influence the heart of God. Uh, that's all, all, all those verses I just named are all in 2 Corinthians, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And after that, uh, eye has not seen nor ears heard the things that God's prepared uh, for those that love them and their hearts and all that stuff. After that verse, he says, but God has revealed them to us by his spirit. So God desires, he, he says, no man can find out the work that God makes from the beginning to the end. You know, that's what Jesus said. Jesus is the one that revealed that work that God makes from the beginning to the end. And what is the work that God prepared from the beginning to the end. I want to, some of you might know where I'm going, but I want to go to Ephesians chapter one real quick, and I'm just going to quote this. Well, I can quote it, but I feel like I just don't quote it perfectly, so I want to say it here. What is the thing that God has planned since the beginning all the way to the end? Ephesians chapter one, verse four. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Isn't that good news? That was God's plan all along. He wasn't deterred by sin. He knew what was going to happen. 
But what does the Bible call Jesus? I think it's Revelation chapter 13. He's the lamb slain before the foundations of the world. That was his plan. So to say that you can't understand that is wrong. You can understand the work that he's made from the beginning to the end. And that work is Jesus. He is the work of God and his good word for your life. That's a juicy verse right there. Ecclesiastes, uh, we're about halfway done here. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 12. I know that there is no good in them, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. Again, old covenant mindset. You're focused on the wrong that people do. Uh, to say that there's no good in a Christian is to say that God is no good because God lives in his new holy temple, which is us. The tabernacle of, men, of God is with men. Uh, you know what's that good thing in you? It's Jesus. That's the cry of the bride. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He feeds amongst the lilies. He's a special friend to those that relate to him by grace. Uh, also, every man... Uh, Sorry, uh, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. So he's basically, the, the best that you can do is based off of how holy you live. No, old covenant mindset, verse 13. And also that every man should eat and drink and, that, and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. What's the new covenant perspective of, of this? And also that every man should eat and drink of Jesus. We are eating his flesh and drinking his blood. We are... We are feasting on the bread of life, and we are drinking on that new wine, and we're enjoying the good of all his labor, all the labor of Jesus. Jesus did all the labor, and he says what? It is the gift of God. Somebody answer to me, what is the gift of God? Romans chapter 6, I think it's verse 23. He says, but grace is the gift of God. Uh, the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is grace through eternal life. Let's just go read it, man. Man, I love I love doing this stuff because um, verses and ideas just get pulled out that I haven't considered in a long time. Man, let's just read verse 22 just for fun. Romans chapter 6, But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what the gift of God is. And what is eternal life? John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they might have relationship with the Father and with the Son. Uh, and, and the New Testament constantly calls grace the gift of God. That's if you know if you've ever read the old testament you know that if you're a good bible student you would know that <laughs> um verse 14 i know that whatsoever god doeth it shall be forever does that sound like anything you know jesus the work of jesus he he whatever god does it shall be forever the work of jesus is forever he is always taking away your sin sin can never penetrate your spirit again he sealed you that is the work of god Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. God does it, and the men should fear before him. Uh, fear, again, Jesus quoted fear, and he turned it into love. He turned it into worship. So we don't have to read that and think fear, because the new covenant is very clear. Perfect love cast out fear. So nothing can be put to it, or nothing can be added to it. You can't add to the work of cross, and nor anything taken from it. You can't say 
that the work of Jesus didn't complete all, didn't fulfill all righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin so that you who knew sin could become righteous. No one can take that away. Nobody. And God does it. And that men should fear, men should love and worship before him because of this great thing. Verse 15, that which has been is now and that which is to be has already, has already been. And God requires that which is past. I believe this is a reference to he has revealed the plan of salvation since the beginning of the Bible. Uh, since the, 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 the very first chapter of the Bible, the earth is, it was, was um, dark and without void, and then, and then God spoke light. Within the first couple of bo- verses of the Bible, you already see Jesus. One, if you know anything about the Isle of Toph, and I'm going to teach on that at some point here. I really am. If you don't know what the Isle of Toph is, don't worry. But in the first verse of the Bible... The Hebrew uh, word or, or combination of letters, letters all of Toph, that represents Jesus is right in there. In the beginning was all of Toph, God. Uh, in the beginning, all of Toph, uh, there was God, blah, blah, blah. Um, there's Jesus right there. And in the first couple of verses, the earth was dark and without form and void. And then, G- and then God spoke a word and then there was light. Does that sound like anything you know? That was you, your life, and all of humanity, all of us. We were dark and without form and void. And what did God do? He spoke his word. And what's his word? It's Jesus. The word made manifest. The words that come out of God's mouth is Jesus. And what was that word? It was light. Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the light, and the life. I am the light of the world. John chapter 8. He that, uh, John chapter 11 he that there's 12 hours in a day, and he that walks in the light doesn't stumble, but he that doesn't walk in the light stumbles. If you're walking in light, this is all throughout the New Testament, First John, the first chapter. You need to walk in the light as he is in the light. How is he in the light? Born again in the bosom of the Father. That's good news. Uh, so uh, I'm going to read this again. It's really King Jamesy. I'm sorry. That which has been is now, and that which is has already been, God requires that which is past. God announced the plan of salvation in the whole Old Testament. It's just a giant picture of how Jesus was going to redeem us. So that's what that verse speaks to me. Verse 16, And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. Uh, let's just keep reading. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. Let's let's do these two verses together. I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. So he's basically saying that wickedness was there. Sorry, I'm thinking of another verse in Proverbs that's really close to this, and I'm curious if it's saying the same thing. Moreover, I saw under the sun, excuse me, the place of judgment, that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. So he's saying, it. it what, what's he doing? He's looking with his natural carnal eyes, and he's just seeing the righteous, and he's seeing the wicked, and he's, a seeing, a, he's seeing iniquity there. He's beholding with his eyes. He says in his heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. What's the new covenant terms? What's the new covenant terms for wicked, and what's the new covenant terms for righteous? Wicked, anyone who has not accepted Jesus. Righteous, uh, somebody who has accepted Jesus. The sin of the New Testament is predominantly focused on 
Have you made Jesus your Lord and Savior? That's it. Have you accepted Jesus? Have you believed on Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe he's the Son of God, that he, he died for your just, uh, that he died for your sins and was raised for your justification? Do you believe that? That's the, the question of the New Testament. And then when you go back in the Old Testament, you reframe these things under that mindset. Okay, wicked is anybody that hasn't accepted Jesus, righteous. And we're talking about their spirits, the very core of them. Um, that's what Ephesians chapter 2 talks about. You were a, 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 a child of wickedness, a child of evil, a child of the devil. But, but now you've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God. Praise the Lord. Um, I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there's a time there for every purpose and for every work. Screw it, man. I'm going to go to Revelation chapter like 20. Okay. I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I do not believe Revelation, most of Revelation, I would say 90 to 95% of it. I do not believe that these are things in the future events. I believe these things have already taken place in the early church. And Revelation is about Jesus. Very first verse, Revelation 1.1, the, the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It doesn't say this book is about how the world's going to end. No, uh, I do not believe in dispensations. Um, I do not believe that the wrath of God is going to come upon a group of people later, um, after we've all been raptured out of here, because the wrath of God has been appeased, one, at the cross, and two, at the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And I won't get into all that stuff, but that was the final blow on the system of judgment, the system of, of law, the deceitfulness of I can be holy enough. So that's, that's what I believe it would take me probably four hours to explain all the scripture to go along with that. But um, the Bible clearly says in Romans chapter 4 and chapter 5, where there is no law, there is no sin imputed. Like I said, we saw that in the Old Testament. I mentioned that already, but the New Testament. I can't be preaching the grace of God and that God's not mad, and yet also believe that, oh, but actually he's going to rapture us out of here and he's going to impute wrath to all these people. Nope. So I won't get into everything I believe, but um, the thing that I... I, I will agree with on most people, but then also disagree on the inside of it. I know that's kind of confusing. Is Revelation chapter 20. Uh, I believe this is after. Whenever, whenever time stops, whenever that is, I don't believe that soon. I really don't. Uh, why would God give me all these wonderful things that he wants me to accomplish in my life? And, and I have desires of a family and all these things just so he can rapture us out of here. No, uh, I can't believe I'm saying this. I, I, I really didn't want to put this out there, but uh, I personally, I do not believe in a rapture um, for multiple reasons, but, and I don't mean to open up a can of worms and I don't mean to confuse you, but I just kind of, I kind of got to start, I got to start telling people these things some, some way, you know, but after time is over and everything's over, whenever Jesus comes back, I don't think he's coming back to get the church. I think he's just, I think time is just going to stop and What's going to happen? Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. 
I want to point this out. It says the books, plural, the books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. So there's another book. There's a book of life. Uh, me, there's only two books. There's two testament, the book of death and the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the book. You know, remember the verse in Ecclesiastes? We're talking about a time of judgment. Um, the dead, they were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So we see God here in the end of time. He opens up a book and it says he judged them according to their works. Clear re religious view is this right here. You better, you know, you accepted Jesus, but what did you do in your life? Did you witness enough? Did you go to church? And God's going to judge you based off of that. Wrong. Double wrong. The only thing, if you're fearful of that, I'm here to tell you good news. The only thing God is going to make a judgment on is, did you accept my son or did you not? That is it. Does my spirit live in you or does my spirit not live in you? That is the only thing of judgment. Uh, do not fear that your heavenly father, and I say father because that's who he is. He He's not your slave master. Do not fear that your heavenly father is going to when you get to those pearly gates, look at you and say, uh, be cast out, thou wicked servant. And also, on that same note, don't be looking for a good job, thou well and faithful servant. Be looking for a welcome home, son. Amen. The only thing God's going to judge you based off of is, uh, the. remember that verse that says, the works of God. He judged them according to their works. If you've heard me say this once, you've heard me say it a million times. What is the work of God? John chapter 6, verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe on the Son whom he has sent. That's the words of Jesus. First John chapter uh, 3. Yeah, chapter 3, around verse 20, 21, 22, 23, right in there. It's This is the commandment, that we should believe on his Son. We believe on his Son. We believe on his name, and that we love others as he gave his commandment. How did he give his commandment? Love others as I've loved you, implying you've received the love of Christ. So, I want to point out that in this scene in Revelation, there's two books open. And it says, the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. This is kind of, I don't know, this is some heft, this is some really cool Bible stuff to me. If you're not written in the book of life, and how do you get your name written in the book of life? You've accepted Jesus. You're a born-again Christian. Your spirit's been born again. If you're not written in the book of life, there's only one other book that you have to present to God, and that's the book of death. And God has to judge you by your works. So in that sense, yeah, sure, God's going to judge you by your works. Because if you don't have Jesus on the inside of you, he's going to look at what did you do in your life. Um, let's, say, um, let's say that apart from Jesus, you could fulfill the law. Then yeah, God could let you into heaven, and he could judge you out of that book, and you could get in. But all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. That's powerful. Um, don't get in condemnation about that stuff. Uh, there, there's a time of judgment, he says. Uh, let's read the verse again here. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 17. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. 
The righteous are those that have accepted Jesus, and the wicked are those who have not accepted Jesus. It's that plain. It's that simple. It's that hopeful. Amen. Verse 18, I said in my heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might manifest them and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. So we're getting into some things here. Uh, I'm going to keep on reading. For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beast. Every one thing befalleth them. As one dieth, so the other dies. Yea, they have all one breath, so that the man has no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. All go unto, the, unto one place. All are of the dust and shall turn to the dust again. Who know? Uh, I'm going to stop there for a second. The writer, Solomon, who's in a not good place with, with God at the moment while writing this, apparently, or he's just writing it um, vicariously, just from the standpoint of a man. You know, maybe he didn't necessarily believe these things, but he wrote them just as a, a, a to show what life is like without intimacy with God. He says, yep, man and beast are the same thing. I'm going to take some time to go into why that's wrong. Um, I've heard stories of preachers saying this. You know, we're just like beasts. We're like animals. I want to go back to Genesis chapter 1. And, and, and yeah, Genesis chapter 1. When God wants birds, he speaks to the air. When God wants animals, uh, uh, cattle and, and land animals, he speaks to the land. When God wants sea creatures, he speaks to the sea. Who does God speak to when he wants man? He speaks to himself. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Let us make man in what? Our image. Do you know in the first uh, six chapters of the Bible, it mentions man being made in the image of God about five times? Why? Because it's trying to get the point over, you are not in the same class as an animal. You are not in the same class as a bird, as a dog, as a, a, a whale. Um, you, are, you know, when, when God wanted plants, he talked to the ground. You are not in that category. You are in the class of God. You know, in science, in, in, in high, middle and high school, we talked about different classes and animals and species and all that junk. Well, you are in a, a completely different class with God. I got to throw in a little rabbit trail here. I'm, I'm chasing this rabbit right now. I'm going to kill it real quick because, uh, man, in, in our culture, in our world, and I'm not saying you should go rebuke somebody who thinks this and, you know, start commenting on people's posts. I'm just saying some food for thought. In our world, there's such a... Um, exaltation of animals i've noticed and i like animals man i like dogs i like cats i think me and my wife are gonna get one or the other very soon i don't have a problem with animals i have an animal back at home in georgia and i love that dog and you know there's nothing wrong with them but the emphasis that is put on animals it's 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 put above human life and i am not down for that because we are made in the very image and likeness of God. We have the ability of God. We, 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 we are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. We are made in his image. His blueprint is on us. It's not on dogs. It's, it's not on cats. It's not on birds. It's not on save the whales, which I'm not against any of those things, but I'm, I'm just illustrating a point deeply, which is 
we are in a higher class. Does that mean we treat animals wrong? No, there's a verse, I think it's literally in Proverbs, and it says if you beat your animal, you're just a brutish man. I'm not advocating animal suffering, but I think there's something very twisted about this belief that we need to save all our animals and our dog and our planets, but yet we'll let people abort a human baby. Now don't shout me down because I'm preaching real good now. I'm just joking. But for real, you know, the people that I've met and known in my life that are all gun-ho for, for, for the, really it's like rights and like equality for animals. And I'm not saying you treat an animal wrong, but they're an animal. They're a dog. They, they cannot perceive and think as humans can because humans are made with the mind of God. They, it doesn't matter if they're pursuing God or not. They are made with the ability to reason and to feel as Jesus himself does. Um, I'm not trying to get myself in trouble. I'm just trying to point out this belief that we are just the same as animals and um, we need to put animals right next to humans is a lie. And I think it's very disturbing, very disturbing that we have people, and I'm not saying those people are, I'm not trying to criticize those people. I'm trying to um, point out the source of their belief, which isn't from God, it's from the enemy. And unfortunately, people are just, you know, fooled into it. Um, there's something very wrong, very ungodly of this belief that, yeah, yeah, man. Uh, uh, like, there's people that are fine with, yeah, abort a baby. It's your body. Do what you want. On the same hand, they'll they'll they will flip their junk because, um, you know, some animal thing. And again, I'm not saying abuse animal, but I'm not going to put animals in the same category of humans because God doesn't love animals. Treat your animals good, but they a, a, a thousand cutest dogs can never amount to a human baby. So, again, this is Old Covenant. This is a man speaking from a place of unbelief that has no intimacy, no intimacy with God. Because if he had intimacy with God long enough, you'll realize the worth and the value of humans and really how cool it is to be a human being. Uh, and there's also something to be said about those of us that seek all of our comfort from our animals. Again, I'm, I'm not saying that's wrong. I think God created animals. He created them for us to enjoy, and I think they offer joy and happiness and, and, and peace and just fun. I think that's, I think that's all in good fun. But when, but when you're, uh, you know, and I don't mean to be sound and sensitive, but it just, it, it just kind of, I just kind of laugh inside a little bit when there's people, you know, carrying around, you know, those dogs with a vest, and they've been they've medically been given a dog because they're depressed. I'm sorry, folks, that's too far. You are now saying that a dog has a better ability to make you happy and cheerful than Jesus does. I mean, if they're not born again, I guess I can give them a pass because they they don't have a source to draw from. from but obviously, I'm going to say get born again, accept Jesus, um, be his friend, let him be your friend, let him love you. And I mean. I don't know. Like I said, there's nothing wrong with taking your dog everywhere because you like your dog. But when your dog becomes your source of happiness, you we, we are we are far off. Ooh, and just some scripture to prove that out. 
Genesis chapter 2. God says, I'm going to make a helpmeet. I'm going to make someone equal to Adam. And then what's the next verse? He brings them all the animals. And then it says, but a helpmeet was not found for Adam. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for that scriptural reference. You will never be able to find the satisfaction that God intended in animals. You won't be able to. It's only in what? It's only in other creations of God. It's only in God himself. It's only seeing God in his creations of human beings because we're made in his image. Can't stress that enough. Verse 21, who knows the spirit of man that goes upward and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? Um, I know. Who knows if the spirit goes upward and and the spirit of the beast goes downward to the earth? Um, I know. Why? Because the New Testament tells me. The New Testament, Jesus tells me. There's a spot in the kingdom of heaven with me in it. I'm there right now in the spirit. And then one day, my, you know, our bodies will pass away and we'll, we'll be there in our physical bodies when he, when he raises them from the dead. Amen. Old covenant mindset. The old covenant mindset, if you see in this one chapter of the old covenant, we already see that he doesn't understand God. He, he, he doesn't think with the thoughts of God. He thinks God's thoughts are unobtainable, but the new covenant is flipped. You can think the thoughts of God. You can understand God. God's not holding out from you. The secret thing belongs unto the Lord. That's the old covenant. New covenant, he that speaks in an unknown tongue speaks in divine secrets, mysteries. And you're speaking out the mystery of Christ, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Last verse in this chapter, verse 22. Wherefore I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works. For that is his portion. Who shall bring him to see what he what shall be after? Who, who shall bring him to see what shall be after? Jesus will bring you what to see what's after this life. But isn't that a sad existence? The highest attainment I can ever get is to just work hard and just, you know, enjoy life while it's here. That's sad. Praise God. This was really long, but um, I think a lot of revelation was flowing out. and I had a lot of fun. And uh, thank you, Mr. Zachary Campbell, for suggesting this. This was so much fun. I think I'm going to start taking suggestions more. If you remember at the beginning, praise God for the Holy Spirit, I remember, I asked you the question, what is the point of life? You know, I believe every part of the Bible speaks something. I believe even the order of the book speaks something. Ecclesiastes, a book all about what's the point of life? What, what can I even do? Why, why even function in life? You know what the next book of that, what after that book is? The, the book after Ecclesiastes is the answer to all those questions asked, and it's Song of Solomon. What's the point? It's to be with your beloved. It's to function in relationship with Jesus. And that's a beautiful picture our fathers painted for us in the scriptures. Thank you for listening. Send questions, comments. Uh, you can email me, readyrider98 at gmail.com. Facebook message me, text me, send me some requests. Uh, and I'm excited to answer your guys' questions and just hopefully um, spread the gospel in the way that it should be. And the good news is that Jesus is not mad at us and he's having a good time. <laughs> he's actually in a good mood. Amen. Y'all be blessed, man. Take it easy. Thank you.